living in intimate proximity to Jesus. He's speaking the very words of God because he is God. Let it be so ingrained in you that it spills over. You are free, friends. Now I'm confused. We want to let the word of God really fill us and then spill over out of us. So that's the big question for today is, what is your relationship with Scripture? Uh, Augustine wrote this, if you believe what you like in the Bible, you really don't believe the Bible. You believe yourself. Uh, it's, it's been said about Thomas Jefferson that he took the Bible and he ripped out pages and sections that he didn't like and created his own, right? That seems a bit drastic, but sometimes we do that really subtly in that we gloss over or skip over or diminish pieces of Scripture that we don't like or are too confusing or are too dry and dusty. And especially in the Old Testament, you know, it's, so much of the Old Testament is, is about laws or about really funky prophecies or even the narrative gets really violent, and it's like, what is that all about? And so just take me to the New Testament. We're New Testament Christians, you know? And let's just skip over the law, skip over the prophets, let's skip over all the violence, and let's just get to Jesus. And what we see in this passage today is that Jesus doesn't skip over the Old Testament. It's actually the Bible he read. And so as we look at Jesus's approach to the Old Testament, may we reflect that same approach, that he, he was one to reinterpret and to restore the actual word of the word. So let me pray, and then let's get into the scripture a bit. Lord, thank you for uh, these men and women, and thank you for what you are doing in their lives, how you are stirring them, how they are being distinctive in their particular context. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and active, able to penetrate the very depths of who we are. Thank you that it's not dry and crusty piece of literature. It's not something for us to win an argument with or feel superior about ourselves. It's not a five-minute devotional. It is your word to us. And so would you read us as we read it? We pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think, this is Jesus talking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. But that's exactly what people were thinking. You know, they, they thought this guy is, uh, is a rebel. He, he's like pushing the limits of the law. He is breaking the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. All of these laws and 
all of these um, rituals and rules, he, he's like seemingly bypassing them. Even the people he's hanging out with are the people that you don't hang out with if you are a law keeper. They called him the friend of sinners because he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and the poor. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to disregard it. I didn't come to cancel it out because it's irrelevant and old. He said, I came to fulfill it, to fulfill it, to make it full. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to his hometown. It's Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he grabs a scroll And he opens it up to Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back, and The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture, this promise that you've been waiting for, the release of prisoners and freedom and healing and restoration, it's here. Today, he said, it's fulfilled. It's made Full. And so the question then is, how exactly did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? And so for this, I want to turn us back to the Bible Project, because they say it way better than I possibly could. So would you take a look at this? You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these All of these, I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. 
Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's command wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. Helpful? Yes, it is. Thank you. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything 
is accomplished. He said, I came to fulfill the law, to fill it full, and nothing is going to disappear from the law until everything is fully accomplished, until the kingdom comes in its fullness. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Some of your uh, other translations might say, amen, amen. I tell you. And when we, we use amen at the end of a prayer, right, it's kind of like the mic drop. It's, it, it literally means so be it, so be it. Jesus puts it at the beginning. 55 times in the book of Matthew, he starts with amen. He starts with, I tell you the truth. Not Moses told you 1,500 years ago, and not Jeremiah told you 800 years ago, but I tell you. Jesus is speaking with authority. He's speaking the very words of God because he is God. The religious leaders had littered the pathway with man-made barriers. The religious leaders had added to the law of God with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of their own laws to the degree that there was just a weight of burden and there was this elitism and it kept them superior in their own minds. It kept them being the righteous people and everyone else being the poor peasants. My grandma, uh, she, she was awesome. And uh, she, I don't know if this was just a, a thing that people did back in, you know, coming out of the de- Depression, but she never threw anything away. And so she had this furniture, and every year she was just in the habit. You know, back then they did spring cleaning. It's like some of you could use that habit, you know. And... Um, <laughs> But part of spring cleaning was that she would put another coat of varnish on her furniture. And so uh, I inherited her old piano. And I'm serious. It has a good quarter inch to half inch thickness of just layer after layer after layer of varnish. If I had the time and willingness to strip that piano, it'd be beautiful underneath that be this beautiful cherry wood. That is exactly what Jesus is doing in this restoring and reinterpreting the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to strip away all of this, these layers, layer after layer of burden and elitism in order to get to the core foundation of what the law actually is, the big why. And the law, what it actually is, is that it points to our need for a savior. It points to the fact that our own self-sufficiency doesn't cut it. It points to the fact that in ourselves, we are anything but righteous. And we need God's kingdom to break through into our lives. And so Jesus is cutting through the veneer. He said to the Pharisees, you study the scripture, but you've missed the one that it's all about. You've missed me. That the whole Old Testament are all of these signs that are pointing toward Jesus. But they got hung up on the signs and they missed the destination, which was Christ. Jesus reinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of the upcoming cross. 
which leads to this. It says in verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The followers of Jesus are commanded to obey the fuller interpretation of what has already been fulfilled in Jesus. And so the question is, are we supposed to still uh, obey the Old Testament law or not? Well, yes and no. (laughs) We are still to come under the big why, but we're to come under the fuller interpretation that Jesus gave through the cross and the fulfilling of the law. And we're going to see that played out over the next couple of weeks. Jesus gives six examples of, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm saying, don't even get angry at your brother. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, love your enemies. Look at the fuller picture of the law. We are to obey in light of God's fulfilling that through Christ. So we're not to dismiss or skip over the hard parts. We're not to take everything literal and void of hyperbole. We're not to idolize scripture. We're not to minimize scripture. We, this is a call to careful interpretation, to careful reading to read with heart and mind, to read in community. It is most of all the reading to find out who wrote it. It's relational, not just informational. It's transformation. We live from a new reality. James, in his letter, he said, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. Live it out. Reflect it. Let it be so ingrained in you that it spills over into everything that you do. There is something truly significant, Jesus says, about living out the words of Scripture, being formed by the gospel and then proclaiming the gospel with words and actions. And then the last verse for today is verse 20. And this really becomes the premise for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And this would have been radical for them to hear. Listen to this. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. To the people in the audience, that would be like him saying, unless your basketball skills surpass those of LeBron, then you have no part in the kingdom. You know? Or unless your marketing skills surpass those of Apple, you have no place in the kingdom. Or unless your chocolate chip cookies surpass those of Leah Shrump, you have no part in the kingdom. Because my wife makes the meanest chocolate chip cookie ever. Unless your righteousness, he says, surpasses that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, you have no place in the kingdom. That would be crazy talk. <laughs> He isn't talking about giving a more dramatic appearance of righteousness, of praying even louder than the Pharisees, or 
being more disfigured in their face when you're fasting or being more extravagant in your giving, posting it all over social media. No, it's just the opposite, really. It is recognizing that our weakness magnifies his strength. It is recognizing that Jesus is calling us to what is impossible in order to accomplish what is impossible to accomplish in our own strength and ability in order to rely on him. I was thinking about this story out of Luke 18. It says that one day a rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what's it take? What's it take to get into the kingdom? And Jesus said, you've You've heard all the commands, right? You've followed the commands, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. And the rich young ruler is hearing that, and of course he has followed them. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He goes, yeah, check, check, check. In the old, I mean, in the Jewish worldview, righteousness was equated with wealth and blessing and prosperity. So if you were wealthy, it was thought that you must be a righteous person. And the antithesis was true as well, that if you were poor, if you were diseased, if you had some sort of uh, sickness or chaos in your life, that meant that you were unrighteous, right? So John chapter nine, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus, And the people ask, okay, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Because the assumption was the reason that he is blind is because he has sin in his life. The book of Job. Job has everything taken away from him. His friends automatically assume it's because he has sin in his life. That was the worldview that Jesus enters, right? So the assumption was the rich young ruler must be righteous. So look at this in Luke 18. The rich young ruler says, you know, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. I've kept all these commandments. I'm a righteous person. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus is saying, empty yourself of yourself. Your identity is attached to wealth. Your assumption is that status and external acts are equated to righteousness. So empty yourself of yourself in order to be filled with the true righteousness of God with the the withness, the proximity, the intimacy of God in Christ. Become poor in order to identify your need for God's mercy and grace. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. And the rich young ruler leaves depressed. His face fell. He became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. 
Jesus looks at him and says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? We're all toast if that dude doesn't get in because he's wealthy, which means he's righteous, which means now I'm confused. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious leaders, you have no place in the kingdom. And that looks back at the beatitude. That looks back to the declaration of congratulations on the poor and the powerless, on the grieving and the hungry and desperate, right? It also looks forward to the cross. It's a statement of this upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, and righteousness isn't dependent upon your wealth or dependent upon what you look like or dependent on your actions, but it is completely dependent on a transformed heart that only comes through the cross of Jesus. Surpassing righteousness is based upon what Jesus has done. It points to the absolute dead end of self-righteousness. And it points to the absolute need for the righteousness that comes through the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Say, I am the righteousness of God. Say, I am the righteousness of God. It's a reality of who you are. Later in chapter 5, at the very end, He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You read that and it's like, oh, crap. More striving. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that maturity in Christ, that this living into the reality of who you actually are comes in proximity to a father who loves you. That your identity is completely based upon the righteousness of Jesus. So we're going to take communion in celebration of that fact. And as we, as those guys are passing out communion, uh, we invite you, if you're a Jesus follower, to take the bread and the cup 
to remember that his restoration and his redemption means your righteousness, your standing, that you've been justified in Christ, but you've also been made righteous. And the difference between the two are like when, if a professor takes that F that you scored on your test that you forgot to study for last week and throws it out, that's justification. It's also grace. But being made righteous would be if that professor suddenly gave you a 4.0 based upon her work in that field. It's not just getting your school debt canceled. It is a pro proclamation that you are wealthy. It is extravagant grace that you are the righteousness of God because your sin has been dealt with once and for all. It's the judge taking off his robes and coming down and putting on an orange jumpsuit to take the punishment that we deserve. That's the righteousness of God. So let me read this. This is Romans 8. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. You are free, friends. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. And his son, Jesus, listen to this, he personally took on the human condition. He entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The kingdom has broken through. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, to grace, how great.